Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, something else. And if you talk to our friends and family, they're thinking about other things through the summer too. Absolutely, everybody's trying to figure out exactly how they're going to get away for some sort of a vacation holiday throughout the summer, John. And it's interesting, you listen to what the CDC is saying, and and it's a similar thing over here in the UK as well. The scientists incredibly cautious about travelling. Certainly here in the UK, that is the narrative. But, John, investors just don't see it that way. Bring up the chart of Ryanair uh, from the beginning of 2020. We're back to the same levels that we came in to 2020 at. Basically, the stock has completely rebounded, as you can see, during that period, actually we're up by 7.5%. So investors certainly see a reopening, as you pointed out with Lisa just before the break. A lot of volatility, though, in the stock over the last few days, uh, as we've seen the equivocation from the UK and the case counts climbing uh, within the EU, the health situation getting worse and worse. Um, Let's bring in Michael O'Leary. He's the Ryanair CEO to talk about this. Michael, good morning. You were talking about the idea on a call a little earlier on that you're going to be flying 80% Uh, of the schedule that you would normally fly kind of July to September. What's your degree of confidence in that number? Yeah, good morning, Guy. Good morning, John. I think there's a reasonably high degree of confidence at this point in time that short-haul flying uh, will significantly recover, I think, through the peak summer months of July, August and September. That's driven by the success of the vaccine program in the UK. 50% of the UK population has now been vaccinated. By the end of May, that will be at 80%. Europe will catch up, I think, over that period of time. We think 50% of the UK adult population will be vaccinated by the end of May. They say 70% by the end of June. And then I think you will see a pretty rapid recovery of short-haul holiday travel between the UK and the European Union through the summer. Already, the Portuguese, the Spanish, the Greek and the Cypriot governments have said they're going to welcome vaccinated UK travellers from the 17th of May onwards. So, you know, it's not certain. But I think there's a reasonable grounds for optimism that once the school holidays arrive, June, July, August, that we will see, I think, quite significant recovery of short haul travel within Europe. You won't see long haul recovery this summer. But again, a lot of people who would normally have gone long haul for their holidays to the States or to Asia will holiday at home in Europe. And we think Ryanair would be the beneficiary of that. You, you sound confident you think it's going to happen later on in the year, but the, but the date keeps getting pushed to the right. And certainly That's the noises true. out of the UK over the last few days have been less than optimistic. Michael, you said this morning that, that you could survive if we don't have a summer season. My question to you is how? Well, we have a very strong balance sheet. You know, we're sitting on more than three and a half billion of cash at the moment. We have a very small cash outflow. Uh, most of our aircraft are grounded at the moment. Most of our pilots and camera crew are on furlough, pay schemes, etc. So we can survive. We don't want to survive. We do want to see people return to travel. And I would put the question back to those UK governments. If, as the UK government has, you vaccinated 80% of the adult population by the end of May, why are you restricting their movement? You know, they are, they are at very little risk. I mean, the one thing we know from the vaccines, the experience in Israel and in other countries, is as you begin to vaccinate large proportions of the population, the risk of serious illness, the risk of hospitalizations and the risk of death fatalities almost collapses, certainly falls to very low levels. Now, we're only locking up at the moment not to limit the spread of COVID, 
but to actually to eliminate the risk that COVID cases will overwhelm the hospital service and the health systems. Once you've eliminated that risk with vaccinations, frankly, I think people are going to rebel. They're not going to uh, yeah. be willing to be locked up. The kids are not going to stay home from school. Life will return to normal. And I think COVID will become, I mean, it will still be with us, but it will be much more, I think, uh, similar to the annual flu, the annual cold, because of the success of vaccinations. Well, Michael, as you know, they might rebel, but right now it's illegal to go on holiday. So until that's lifted, we've got a problem. So my question to you would be, how hard are you lobbying on the vaccine passport issue and how close are we to a breakthrough? Well, I mean, as you know, John, it's illegal to drive over the speed limit, but lots of people do it too. You know, <laughs> again... You know, so, I Michael, let me jump in. Are you telling me that your summer is reliant upon people rebelling and getting on the plane and breaking the law? No, I mean, I, I was going to move on to say, you know, sure. certainly long-haul travel will be much more restricted, but you have free movement of people within the European Union and in large measure between the UK and Europe as well. Now, I think there's, by the time you get to the end of May or end of June, you have all of the high-risk uh, categories, the elderly, the obese, the infirm, have been vaccinated. 80% of the adult population have been vaccinated. The children... Uh, have a lower rate of catching COVID but don't suffer serious illness anyway, what would be the base on which UK governments would be finding people moving around Europe where, by yeah. law, we're entitled to the free movement of people? So, again, be careful. I think short haul, domestically within the US, will be uh, there will be very few restrictions this summer. And short haul, I would say, within the European Union, there will be very few restrictions. Michael. Long haul will continue to be restricted. Yes, Guys, sorry. Michael, you're clearly focused on the summer season, which is going to be the, 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 the holiday for the kids. But nevertheless, short haul is driven by younger demographics. They are going to be the last to get the vaccines. Is that going to be a problem? No, I mean, again, summer holidays tend to be driven by families. You know, it's, uh, the, the school holidays across Europe typically start through June, July, August. That's when the schools are off. That's when families are moving. I mean, young people are, are generally working at that point in time, generally, hopefully, in the hospitality or tourism industry. Uh, I think that's what will drive the recovery. Uh, and then, you know, it, everybody predicts that Europe will be awash with vaccines through May, June, July. We're not quite sure what the date will actually be. And I do accept that the date has moved backwards. But we still see that there's sufficient time and sufficient vaccination room left to run. You know, we still have April, May and June to go to yeah. allow us to recover the holiday season in Europe uh, through July, August and September. Michael, let's make some producers nervous. We've got 45 seconds left. Play with me just for a moment. Chancellor Merkel says she's made a mistake. She's backing down from that Easter lockdown. Your response to that this morning? I mean, I, I, I try not to respond to the instantaneous comments of politicians. We're planning, we announced new routes this morning <laughs> from the UK for the European peak. We expect to run most of the schedule through July, August, September. We're reasonably confident with that kind of outlook. Michael, come back soon. Stay close. It's always great to catch up. Thanks, John. Michael O'Leary, good to see you, sir. Ryan S, CEO. I'm pleased to say we can head down to Washington now to catch up with Congressman Don Beyer, Democrat from Virginia and chair of the Joint Economic Committee. Congressman, great to catch up with you, sir. I want to start Thank with the you, events Jonathan, of the last 24 hours, if we can. There was supposed to be a hearing just to go through some of the priorities for a bipartisan infrastructure proposal, which Republicans didn't want to take part in. And I want to read a quote from Republican Kevin Brady, who said the following. In our view, today's hearing is nothing more than another partisan exercise so the Democrat House leadership can set up yet another multi-trillion dollar one-sided spending bill. Congressman, can you tell us why it's more sincere than that? 
I was really disappointed in ranking member Brady's comments because it didn't seem to have any connection to reality. We invited all the Democrats and all the Republicans to come tell us what their priorities should be in this next infrastructure bill. And I think Kevin Brady knows that there are many Democrats, including me, that hope that this bill is mostly or largely paid for. Uh, so this is, you know, this is a once in a generation infrastructure bill that we'd love to have everybody's input for. By the way, it's going to affect all those Republican districts, too, in really major ways. Well, let's talk about what's happened previously in the last couple of months. Do you think they have been conditioned by the approach to the $1.9 trillion bill where many Republicans felt totally frozen out of the process? Yeah, although, I, again, I don't think they were frozen out of the process. There were extensive markups on this. Uh, you know, the, the most controversial part for them was the $1,400, which came from their president, Donald Trump. Uh, and by the way, is, is affecting all their folks. We have the, there's a big piece, they were against the state and local government funding. The best of my knowledge, no Republican governor or Republican mayor has refused to accept these funds uh, to, to strengthen their communities. It was, again, it was a, a wildly popular bill, is a wildly popular bill among all Americans, including uh, Republican Americans, just not their elected officials in Washington. Congressman, you said that they were presented with a bill that was mostly or largely paid for. But isn't that the issue? The way that it's being paid for through tax hikes uh, on wealthier individuals and on corporations is something that Republicans have said is a no-go for them, that they don't want to do. How are you going to reconcile that issue? Well, you know, I, I don't know how we're going to reconcile it. I think we just have to come after it with the facts. You know, Lisa, we did a hearing before the pandemic on infrastructure in ways and means, where virtually every Democrat and Republican said, we need to have a way to pay for this and it needs to be sustainable. Well, you know, we, we know that the gas tax is, is, a, is a no starter for many different reasons, but we also saw yesterday that US corporate uh, effective tax rate last year was 7.8% after the JCTA, that the top 1% had their net worth increased by $4 trillion. Uh, or, or just the, the New York Times editorial on Sunday about how, you know, personal income is almost all reported in tax, but a, a huge part of business income is not, to the tune of $650 billion uh, or $1.6 trillion a year, I think was the, the New York Times number. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit right. out there that wouldn't affect the economy. Congressman, and these are points that are widely accepted among Democrats. However, there are Republicans that come back and they say, look, you're going to prevent a certain amount of dynamism, investment in things like infrastructure just by the corporations themselves if they have to pay higher taxes. And we can debate that till the cows come home. But the question really here is, is there any wiggle room to negotiate in higher taxes with Republicans or is it going to have to be done without any of their support? Well... I, I wish there were wiggle room. I think one place, Lisa, that might be fruitful is looking at carbon pricing. And now that the American Petroleum Institute, along with ExxonMobil and others, and the Business Roundtable and the U.S. Chamber have all said that carbon pricing should be on the table, uh, maybe we can get Republicans to do that. And at a minimum, pay for you know, the roads and bridges and, and asphalt and stuff that they really like. Congressman, what do you think the optimal approach now is then? Do you think it is a series of smaller bills or still one large bill? Uh, Jonathan, I, I prefer one large bill, but I, I'm, a, I'm agnostic. Whatever it takes to get the job done. I know drifting around is the idea that you take things you could get Republicans on board with, like highways and roads, 
bridges and do that uh, with their votes. And then the other more controversial things, although why broadband and electrical grid modernization should be controversial, uh, you may have to do that through through reconciliation. You know, or one other bite at the reconciliation apple this year. Congressman, before we let you go, I want to ask you about Bitcoin. We've got Tesla now accepting Bitcoin as a form of payment. What's the regulatory front uh, when it comes to that crypto asset? Lisa, we're about to dive into that deeply. I think there needs to be. Uh, when you get a completely unregulated currency, while it's exciting and interesting, um, the, the possibility is for you know, everybody from terrorists to, to uh, international mafia type things using it or people just avoiding taxes on a large scale are very real. Uh, so uh, I can't tell you what the regulation is going to be, but uh, it's worth very deep dives this year by Congress. Hey, Congressman, if I shout walkies, do we create some trouble there in your house? Do we start oh. getting the dog going? <laughs> he, he, he really does want to go outside. Yes. I can tell. I'll let you go, sir. Congressman, it's good to see you. Stay close. It's great to catch John. up. Congressman Don Fire there of Virginia. Thank you. Let's turn to Mona Mahajan now, Alliance Global Investors, U.S. investment strategist. She joins us. Mona, great to catch up. As you've said, we're starting to see some fatigue in the big winners through the last yeah. year, going back to late October as well. I'm trying to understand how you approach a market like this one right now. Huge rip since the end of October. You start to see fatigue. How do you approach what you see on the screen? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think it's been a phenomenal market since really last March of 2020. Um, this year, 2021, has really been a story of the reopening trade, that value trade, uh, the rotation into value, into the reopening stories, and out of really that growth in some of those large uh, cap COVID winners from last year. Uh, of course, over the last few days, we've seen a bit of reversal of that because rates have started to come down a little. Maybe there's some questions around the reopening, given news of variants, given news of some states seeing rising cases clearly given what's happening in Europe. So we're starting to see a little bit of, of pause around that reopening value cyclical trade. Um, what we're thinking about, of course, is as we're heading to this summer of really that real unleashing of pent up demand by the consumer and perhaps the real unleashing of the stimulus uh, really flowing through the system, we may see this value cyclical rally have one more leg or maybe some legs through the summer. But what we're really thinking about then towards the second half of this year um, are some of the risks on the horizon. And those include one, you know, peak reopening. At some point, you're going to get a peak growth rate. Maybe it's 2Q, maybe it's 3Q. Um, but that, at that point, the second derivative starts to, to slow again in terms of GDP growth. Uh, the second, of course, is we do think that uh, yields have, you know, can continue to grind higher. Um, we do think that the two handle on the tenure is feasible this year. And so that will cause some additional volatility and pressure. And then finally and thirdly, of course, is the Fed, who has been quite accommodative thus far. Uh, we think that continues for most of this year, but at some point, they're going to have to come off this crisis level accommodation that they've been providing. So this was really rates at the zero bound, um, unlimited QE to some extent to really help at the heart of the pandemic. Uh, we're now clearly trying to reemerge from that. So, you know, some things we're thinking about a lot of uh, the good news, a lot of the reopening story, a lot of this value trade is starting to get priced in. Um, so keep in mind, if you haven't yet, you, you do have an opportunity to, to, you know, tactically layer in some cyclicality, but just be mindful then as you're heading towards that second half of the year. Money, you've gone through a lot of issues there. Everyone's got their own <laughs> approach, their own process to work through. 
A lot of people talk about where we are in the cycle. The early trade is the early cycle playbook still with us. Is that going to last another few months, maybe another quarter, another few quarters? Morgan Stanley think we've already seen the early cycle move. Do you use the same approach, Mona? Do you have that early cycle playbook? And when the cycle do you think we are in this market? Yeah, absolutely. I think we are re-emerging from a recessionary environment. And of course, this recession is, is different from some of the others, which are more you know, rates-driven or more consumer-driven. This was a pandemic and a health crisis, but we're clearly re-emerging from it. And that, that playbook actually came to fruition in a very real way this year. So certainly areas like energy, financials, industrials, the cyclical stocks, um, the reopening plays, uh, those all took a nice leg higher. And so a lot of you know, the, what they call the easy money perhaps uh, has been made. But that being said, you know, we do think that um, the earnings growth environment, there's still upside to some of the numbers that we're seeing out there, especially on um, some of these sectors like financials, like energy, like industrials. Uh, some of the, the areas that do well as rates continue to grind higher, of course, financials, especially with the steeper yield curve. Um, we think areas like industrials may have some legs given the infrastructure package that we think will start to come to the forefront in the weeks ahead. Uh, even areas like clean energy, which has been a real focus of the Biden administration and has now sold off as a, the NASDAQ has sold off or as a lot of the growth stories have sold off, um, could have another leg. We think that's a secular uh, growth theme that, that if you haven't yet had exposure to, it's, it's an interesting one here. So. Um, certainly, we're looking at it more from now, a more active approach, taking a sector, you know, by sector positioning approach, uh, rather than a broad market approach. And so I think, you know, at this point in the cycle, after we've had this reopening rally, we have to really be more selective going forward. Just to be clear, Mona, is the reopening rally done? Have we reached a plateau mm -hmm. and we're just going to fluctuate from here? Is that what you're saying? You know, I think that, that there is one leg higher. And, you know, if you think about seasonality, uh, sometimes it's sell in May and go away. But uh, generally this year, I think, um, you know, when you look anecdotally, those summer months are really when we're going to see um, that pent up demand unleashed. So, you know, the consumers will hopefully have the next round of stimulus checks in their pockets. Uh, the vaccination program here in the U.S. will be more fully rolled out. And so you'll really see then that demand for areas like travel, like, um, you know, going back indoors, perhaps even to restaurants, um, going to sporting events. And so I think that, uh, when when the economy really uh, is going through that um, hyper demand phase, we'll see the, the market actually react to that. But that's when you have to start thinking about, well, after that, what happens? Are we at peak reopening? And so I think, you know, you, you probably have a little bit uh, of steam left in this rally, um, but it's it's probably time to start thinking about being a little bit more neutral or cautious as, as we head past the summer months. Mona, you used one line in this conversation that always pops out, jumps out to me when people say the easy money might have been made. <laughs> and you know I always pick up on it, so forgive me for yeah. doing so. Did it ever feel easy? You know, ever since March of last year, it's felt a little bit tough. And so I think, you know, that the whole dichotomy between Main Street and Wall Street has always been a tough one to, to swallow. But I, I certainly think in this case, the markets have been very forward-looking and perhaps they were um, really since last year looking towards the second half of 2021. And so they were very astute in realizing that at some point we will have a program in place that will help us get through the pandemic to reopen fully. Um, and, and interestingly, the retail investor last year played a very large role in that. So, you know, the retail yeah. investor in some way was the winner in 2020, um, really kind of kept, uh, you know, it kept that optimistic outlook. Um, throughout the year. And so they really benefited from that. So yes, we've had an optimistic reopening trade, you could argue since perhaps March, April of last year. So um, hopefully, you know, most investors participated in some way 
in that. Uh, the good news was last year, if you had the growth stocks um, this year, you could actually have some opportunities in the value stocks. And so that's why we think though there is still a little bit more catch up and perhaps a little bit more rebound to, to go in that um, sector. If you think about it, a lot of these value uh, names like financials, energy, industrials, they are still flat, slightly up to March of last year. And so yep. they have some catch up to do to the NASDAQ, which is up you know, 20, 30% from its uh, February, 2020 highs. So um, interesting market still uh, one where, you know, again, you, you know, just be selective, be active, but you still have some opportunities to go. It's never easy. Mona, it's better catch up. You know it's never <laughs> easy. Mona Mahajan, Allianz Global Investors, US Thanks, Investment guys. Strategist. Let's bring in Torsten Slock, Apollo Global Management Chief Economist. Torsten, you've seen your old colleagues, your old peers put out their forecast for growth, for GDP, for 2021, six handles, seven handles, big numbers. Can we just start with the deceleration you anticipate from 21 to 22 and beyond? Absolutely, Jonathan. I think that the number we just got is a very important data point because it does tell us that it is premature to talk about overheating. We have seen, of course, the reopening trade do well, but uh, as Jay Powell has said yesterday, and he's probably surely also going to say today, is that we are still almost 10 million jobs behind relative to where we were in total employment in February of 2020. So the bottom line is that uh, we will have a very strong growth numbers over the next few quarters as the reopening begins to play out as the fiscal stimulus supports. And also both households and corporates have a lot of cash on the balance sheets that they're going to spend. So these three tailwinds will give quite a boost to GDP growth. But uh, the key word here, as you're saying, Jonathan, is the deceleration in growth is important, namely for markets, it becomes critical to figure out the timing in when is the peak in growth and when we'll begin to see the numbers begin to slow down. We often speak as growth and inflation sort of in tandem, and yet they are distinct aspects of this economy. Could we see a situation where we have very robust growth and inflation that still remains within the range that the Fed is expecting, which is pretty low? Absolutely. I mean, there's a number of one-off factors, including base effects, uh, commodity prices. You also have some... Uh, health pricing issues that go into inflation and all those things are, it really is correct what Jay Powell is saying, it is all temporary. And for the Fed to think about inflation, they always keep on emphasizing it has to be persistent. It has to really be a situation where the whole economy is boiling over, where the overheating really is very significant everywhere. And we're just nowhere near that point at this stage. It is clear that we will have strong growth. So, okay, we can start talking about that, but uh, why don't we create the 10 million jobs first that we are behind relative to February of 2020, then we can have a discussion about persistent inflation problems. And that's definitely not this year. Torsten, there are a lot of straw man arguments being made against the 1970s type of inflation and how we're not going to see that. That seems likely that we're not going to go back to that kind of rapid inflationary environment. However, there is this idea that not only have we printed all this money that's about to be unleashed into the economy when people can go out and spend more aggressively, but there also are these supply chain kinks. We have people, companies bringing supply chains back home. These are all frictions as China gets less of a dominant place in the uh, global import and export field. These are all frictions that could add to inflation. How do you account for that? that that's absolutely correct. Uh, but if you think about transportation costs, even if you think about commodity prices more generally, how big a share is that of total costs for companies? I mean, as a starting point, about two thirds of costs for companies is labor. 
So that's first the discussion about if you really want an overheating economy, you really need to see much more upward pressure on wages. And that you will not have that in a situation where the labor market still is, again, about 10 million jobs behind. Now, you could say that if you look at the NFIB, there are some signs that the small businesses are saying that the biggest problem now is that they can't find the right workers, they can't find the right quality of labor. So there could be some pieces of evidence that maybe in some corners of the labor market, you could have some wage pressure. But very broadly speaking to your question, Lisa, it is true that, yes, there are some problems in the supply chain and there's certainly some issues that could lift things in particular because of commodity prices. But the bigger scheme of things, if you think about the total cost base for corporate America, it is still the case that commodity prices and supply chain issues are still a relatively modest amount of problems or compared to at least some of the other things that we need to see to have an overheating. So, Torsten, let's talk about labour. If this was 2009 and we were talking about 10 million jobs short, we'd have a problem and we did have a problem and it took a long, long time to recover from that. But this is not 2009, this is 2021 and companies are shut because of policy. By decision, governments are telling them they've got to stay shut in certain parts of the world, particularly outside of America at the moment, in Europe. So with that in mind, Torsten, I just wonder how relevant that 10 million number is. It's certainly relevant if you are one of them. It's a struggle and we've talked about the pain in this labour market right now. But where the optimistic tone and the hope comes from is that as soon as you take these restrictions off, a lot of that's going to come back and come back quickly. So when we wake up in a summer, Torsten, I want to understand from your perspective exactly where we are in this cycle, because it's not going to be the same as what we saw coming out of 2009 into 2010. You're right. I mean, in some sense, uh, the analogy is that uh, we turned off the lights. And the question is, can the lights just be turned on now? Can we just restart the assembly lines? Can we get the smoke out of the chimneys of the factories that have been on hold while we have been in the pandemic. The issue here is, if you think about this in practical terms, you need to get airline capacity back to where it was before. You need to get people to stay at hotels. You need to get people to go to restaurants. You need to get people to go to sporting events, concerts, all the face-to-face -face consumer services industries. It's a little bit difficult to just see that as we're just turning off and turning on the switch here again and saying, well, now everyone will just go out and do these things. I still think it will take some time before those things get back to the levels where we were in February of 2020, but you're right. The upside risk could be that employment comes back faster, but still 10 million is a pretty, pretty big number when you think about where we are today. So I think Jay Powell and the message we'll get from him again today, yeah. Jay Powell will say and continue to emphasize that yes, it's true that there are some very significant tailwinds here, but why don't we wait a little bit longer before we take the champagne bottle out and celebrate and say that now we have declared victory over the pandemic. It is going to take quite some time still before we get to the point of full employment. As Janet Yellen said yesterday, we'll probably have to get at least into next year before we get back to full employment uh, in the economy again. This phrase, to Torsten, let's just finish on this phrase, full employment. We hear it so much from economists, from you, from others too. I talk about it as well. I just don't know what it means anymore, Torsten. What does it mean for you? What are you looking for? What's the data point that says, sure, we're there, we've made it? Yeah, so that's right. So that's why watching the dots in the dot plot from the Fed's forecast, the ACP, the summary of economic projections is quite important, at least as a guidepost for saying, hey, maybe we had difficulties in markets quantifying this, but at least what is the Fed saying is the unemployment rate that we need to get down to. And they are saying that we need to get down to unemployment rate more close to around four. If we get a four handle, then we may begin to see more upward pressure on wages and therefore, in their view, also more upward pressure on inflation. And given where we are now, with an unemployment rate today of more than six, we still have quite a ways to go. But you're right, Jonathan, it could also be that some parts of the labor market could be a bit stronger, but uh, 
it is critical, this question of how far we are away from full employment, but it's pretty clear that, uh, and this is again what Yellen was saying yesterday, that we're probably not going to get to full employment in 2021. Hey, Torsten, good to catch up. Good to see you. Important conversation. No doubt we'll have another one very soon. Torsten Slock, Apollo Global Management Chief Economist. Seems successful because when I was a kid, three afternoons out of five after school, if I wasn't doing something else, I was in a museum looking at things. And I love museums and I wanted to make them greater and greater and greater. That was Leonard uh, Lauder. He is Estee Lauder Chairman Emeritus, as well as the uh, former Chief Executive Officer and also the son of a number of the two people who founded this company, David Rubenstein. uh, He uh, interviewed him on a peer-to-peer conversation that's set to air uh, in the upcoming days. David Rubenstein joining us now, the host of Peer-to-Peer Conversations, as well as uh, the founder of Carlisle Group joining us here. David, a fantastic rags-to-riches story, one of the most storied makeup companies in the United States, Estee Lauder. What was the biggest standout message from this interview? Well, the company started very modestly. We now know it as a spectacular company. And and, uh, Leonard Lauder often is said, well, you join your mother's big company, uh, Estee Lauder. But actually, when he joined, it was at 800,000 of revenue. So it was a modest company. And he really helped build it. He made his mother into the face of the company. She wasn't a business person, per se. Uh, that was Leonard, and he really did an incredible job of building into one of the most successful companies uh, in the country. And when you talk about the modest inception of this company to where it is now, you asked him about a modern entrepreneur trying to get into the game in the same kind of way and launching a brand. What was his insight and in how things have changed now versus then? Well, it's more competition, harder. Uh, in those days, uh, it was easier to kind of sneak up on competition. But he had a big comp- competitor named uh, Charles Revson who built Revlon. And Revlon was the 800-pound gorilla then. And Revlon once tried to buy Estee Lauder for a million dollars. And his mother ultimately decided not to do it. Uh, had they done so, we wouldn't have heard of Estee Lauder probably. But it shows you can overcome gigantic uh, uh, competitors if you're really persistent and really smart. And, and, and Leonard was. Leonard really was the, the genius behind this, the branding of the company and the business of the company. His mother was a terrific symbol, though, of the company. I feel like we can't talk to corporate leaders right now without talking about the pandemic and how it's affected their business and the way they operate in offices and beyond. How has the idea that people are working from home and aren't socializing as much affected the landscape for a makeup company that has to do with perception? I mean, has it been enhanced through the ideas of Instagram or has it been uh, taken away from just because people are not going out and being with their friends as much? Well, I think people are uh, putting makeup on when they go do their Zoom calls and other things. So I don't think it's uh, adversely affected uh, the industry completely. But but surely when people are not doing as much socializing as before, uh, it's probably not as, as favorable. But I do think the company has incredible brand and it now has something like 28 different brands. So just Estee Lauder is the main brand, the name of the company. But they have bought many other brands over the years and built some like Clinique, for example. 
So since you yourself are co-chair and co-founder of Carlisle Group, I do want to ask you about the pandemic and how it's affected some of the morale. We've heard from Citigroup's uh, Jane Frazier about how they plan to boost morale for companies that have Zoom, uh, for individuals that have Zoom burnout. And we hear from another uh, group of Wall Street firms that their, their, com- their, their, their employees are struggling at home after working with kids, after having a very little break between home and work. What's your response to that? And how much have you observed this Zoom fatigue among your employees? Well, I think Zoom fatigue is everywhere. Uh, it's been over a year now, and, and I've been living essentially in this house for about a year, a uh, house that I've lived in for 30-some years, but I hadn't really spent much time in it compared to uh, the last year. Uh, but I do think that ultimately uh, the businesses that are operated out of office buildings will go back. I doubt, though, that people will go back and work five days a week you know, 10 hours a day in their office. I think people will increasingly want to spend some time working remotely. And I think that's not a bad idea. Like, I do believe that people would like to get back to work when they believe it's safe and they have to make certain that there's not going to be any chance of catching a virus. But I think it's going to take another six to nine months before that happens. Have you observed, though, that, that productivity is starting to, to decrease around the edges among employees who are struggling with this work-home balance that has gotten upended by the pandemic? Well, in the private equity world, it's hard to say that because the private equity world has adopted to Zoom quite well, and we've been doing deals, raising money, and, and exiting deals at a quite good pace. So I can't say the productivity has gone down, but I do think everybody would like to get back to what is, used to be considered normal. But I do think that normal in the future will consider will be considered to have had some work done remotely. I don't think people will travel as much as they used to. Um, I used to fly halfway around the world for an hour meeting, and I don't think that people like me will do that again. That's actually been a debate that we've been uh, harping on this morning, the idea of business travel returning and how much. And my colleague, John Farrow, made a really good point that if, if I can bring you a bottle of wine and see you face to face, I'm more likely to win the deal versus not. So business travel will return. Where will it return and where won't it return from your uh, perspective in your world, David? I think uh, travel that is global, where you have to travel halfway around the world for a meeting, that will be slow to come back. But if it's going from Washington to New York or New York to Boston or Philadelphia to New York, that's relatively easier to do. So I I think shorter distances will probably still see a lot of meetings. But if you have to travel an enormous long time to get somewhere, that will be harder to get done. I do think there will be some of that for sure. Some businesses require you to do that. But I do think it will come back more slowly than, than we would like. Just going forward uh, right now, uh, the theme of the morning has been peak optimism, peak reopening. And we have felt that a lot of the forward action of the earnings that we are going to see has already been priced into the markets. From your vantage point, as far as deals getting done, do you see things starting to slow as people believe that the window is kind of up for sort of peak perfection in markets as the economy now has to catch up? Well, predicting what's going to happen in the market is always a dangerous kind of uh, undertaking. But I do think that as long as interest rates stay low, I do think that you'll see a fair amount of deals getting done, and I don't see a, see a real slowdown. I do think that uh, the SPAC market probably has slowed down a little bit of late. I mean, it has been very robust. It couldn't keep going on at that pace forever, and I do think some SPAC prices have come down. But generally, I think SPACs are probably here to stay for a while, at least at some uh, level. I do think that the financing markets are still relatively robust, and, and I don't think a slowdown is imminent, in large part because the $1.9 trillion uh, stimulus bill is going to keep the economy in reasonable shape for a while. 
David Rubenstein, thank you so much for being with us. And the interview is phenomenal. I recommend that everybody watch it. That was David Rubenstein, co-chair and co-founder of the Carlisle Group, as well as the host of Peer to Peer Conversations. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.